0: What's in here... What's in here... that that wasn't even a joke. What's in here is the last movie you watched. The last book you read. What's in here is something that you need to know about real. Well, and I'm going to ask, would you help me? Okay, here's what I'm going to do. Can you all see this? I'll hold it up so that you can see. It's my wife's Pyrex dish. And I'm under orders not to drop it or damage it. So I will not. But I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the last presidential debate, I'm going to take the last movie you watched, the last book you read, the last personal interaction that you had with other people. Whoa. Now what I'm going to do, and I need you to take this, stand right over here, honey, and I'm going to pour this out and I want you to take, use this to do something with this. Okay. Scrape it out there. That's a girl. Let's put some more in there. Whoa, that's kind of an ugly mess, isn't it? Okay. What do we have here now? This is not coffee. This is rocks and junk. What is down in the bo- in the dish then? Now play with me a little bit. All right. Now we could actually do something with this, you know, with a little fertilizer and some seed. We could grow something with that. What could we do with this? I could put it on my driveway. But you see... The- Okay, thank you, sweetie. Okay, you get the point that I wanted to make here? Everything that we experience 24-7 has something in it that needs to be filtered. Uh, Absolutely everything has the power to change us that goes through our mind for good or for bad, and there needs to be a truth filter. That's what this screen is. It's a truth filter. And so whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is of good report, will think on these things. Now, I'm not employing that, implying that the, the presidential debate was just a pile of rocks because there was some truth there. And I don't dishonor either of the candidates. They're human. But what I'm saying, we need to develop an orientation and a capacity to let things into our lives, not let things into our lives unfiltered. Okay, some other things that probably were in this can. Okay, is it getting that bad? <laughs> Okay. (laughs) This thing is way too small. Okay, we'll do. All right. Oh, we'll make do here. This will work out fine. Okay. Are you as nervous as I am? I didn't used to get nervous. You know, I did this for about 45 years, and uh, it, was, it was always a joy. But I'll tell you something. I didn't know during those 45 years some things that I know now. There are things that I understand with more clarity than I understood then. And I want to share with you this morning uh, some issues that have to do with true truth. You see, everything that comes into our lives, every teacher in the school system, every politician that has influence upon your life, every college professor, everything that comes to our life has a content that cannot just be received as pure gold. There's a need for us to have a basis of deciding what is true and what is not. Do I hear an amen? amen. Okay. Uh, I want to read something to you. Uh, this popped up this morning in my quiet time. And my my pattern is I'm reading through the one-year Bible. And every day I read 1 365th of the Bible. And uh, by the time I finish the year, I will have gone through all the books of the Bible and... This morning I happened onto something. I thought this really, uh, really applies, and this is found in Jeremiah. Now he's one of these Old Testament prophets. How many of you like the New Testament? How many of you find the Old Testament really exciting? Okay, good. Uh, and what I want to share with you this this morning, in part, is that. Our ability to read the Bible with understanding requires that we have a framework of truth. Uh, If it weren't this way, why would there be all the differences between Christians? We have the Old Testament, and it's a puzzlement to many people. There's a lot of bloodshed. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of idolatry. Just a mix of things that when you read it through... Uh, If you don't understand what its purpose is, uh, you will be inclined to take your refuge in the Psalms. How many think the Psalms is a good place to read? Absolutely. And the New Testament. How many of you like the Apostle Paul's writings? Okay. But all of these have to be filtered through a grid of truth. And we need to be people by the Holy Spirit who are wise in understanding the life as it flows to us. All right, Jeremiah eight. <clears throat> I'll begin with verse eight and continue on uh, probably into the ninth chapter. How can you say we are wise for we have the law of the Lord? Actually, the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely. You ever heard a bad sermon? Yes, you have. I'm sure you have. Because I've preached here before. (laughs) But this is what's happening here. The scribes are handling it falsely. The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped since they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen and they will be brought down when they are punished. Isn't this inspiring? Okay, a little bit more. They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth. That they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me. I'm reading in 29 verse 3. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Beware of your friends. Do not trust your brothers. For every brother is a deceiver. And every friend is a slanderer. You might want to move away from the people next to you here. (laughs) Friends deceive. Friend deceives friend, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to lie. Uh, They weary themselves with sinning. You live in the midst of deception. In their deceit, they refuse to acknowledge me, declares the Lord. Verse 7. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. See, I will refine and test them. For what else can I do? Because the sin of my people... Their tongue is a deadly arrow, it speaks deceit. With his mouth, each speaks cordially to his neighbor. But in his heart, he sets a trap for him. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? I think that's enough. What's the point? Is this a true scenario that happens? a lot think about the ethos even of our own nation and culture has it become more righteous truthful honest has it become something that uh, you can just trust everybody that surrounds you to do the right thing I I think back uh, when I was in high school And I got in trouble early because I lost my slate. Uh, You see, a little laughter is good. Too much laughter is an insult. I'm not that old. Okay, and it was a joke. I had an occasion. Uh, I graduated from high school in 1956. You remember when they were, they still had horse and buggy and that sort of stuff. And I graduated in 56. The day after graduation, I got in the car, the truck with my parents. And we left and went to a new, my father was a pastor, went to a new ministry in Southern Oregon. I never saw any of my high school classmates after that. Last year, somebody called me and said, "Uh, how you doing? I think I'm doing okay. He says, we're having a class reunion for the class of 56. And I'd like to encourage you, if you could, to come. Now, this guy was a good friend in high school. We did a lot of things together. And most of it was wholesome. <laughs> but uh, as it worked out, I did go to, the, to my 55th wow. class reunion. Wow. You see, I, I graduated at 8. Yeah. And uh, doing that, I got out my, before I went, I got out my yearbook of the graduating class of 1958, and I looked it up. I looked at all the people that I knew and had a lot of thoughts. I, uh, I, I started thinking about some things. Uh, I, I noticed and I remembered that uh, nobody wore jeans, the girls dressed modestly, no bare midriffs, no tight clothes, skirts to the knee or below. Uh, and uh, I don't recall in a class of almost a thousand kids, uh, anyone. I recall one who it was rumored got pregnant and had to go away to to have a baby. Uh, drugs were not heard of. Alcohol was minimally a problem. The people I knew, uh, none of them drank, none of them smoked. And uh, most of us came from two parent families and the mother was in the home raising the family and doing what mothers did. And uh, I I recall that this was a... uh, In retrospect, as I look at the next 55 years, there's been a huge... Diminution of appropriateness, of honor, of respect. There's been an increase in vulgarity and promiscuity. Uh, Everything you could think of uh, that is a problem now, fundamentally, was not an observable problem then. Uh, There was a culture-wide consensus about the Judeo-Christian ethic. Not everybody obeyed it. But they still had a capacity to feel shame. They knew what was right and they knew what was wrong. Uh, I read a book recently that was not written by a Christian. Uh, how many of you have heard of the book Why Johnny Can't Read? Yeah. How about Why Johnny Can't Tell Right from Wrong? And uh, it, it is laying out a, a an indictment of. What has happened to our educational system? And uh, over those 55 years, uh, there has been an enormous transition in understanding fundamentally what is true. And basically where we stand now in the cultural sense, taking academia, taking government, taking media, There's pretty much an agreement that there is no right or wrong. There are no absolutes. And every person decides for themselves what they will do. And the only restraining factor seems to be that if I'm caught, that's disobeying the 11th commandment, if I'm caught, there could be a consequence. Uh, Our culture has preached to our children and our young people that there are no consequences to their actions. Whether you drink or take drugs, it's just something that goes on at a certain time in your life. Whether you are promiscuous, uh, whether there is fornication and uh, in the adult years, uh, adultery, uh, homosexual uh, activity, uh, that there's really, everything is beautiful in its own way. And there has been a degrading of our culture. And people are in a place where they are not able to, to convincingly say, I know what is right and what is wrong. And I'm telling you this morning, I believe one of the great things that is needed for Christians who are, according to many people who write about these things who are Christian, that Christians have been more influenced by the culture, then the culture has been influenced by the Christian. There are things that we do, uh, attitudes and values that we hold, uh, that do not come from God's heart. They come from another source, and we find ourselves in a place of justifying and rationalizing things that have damaging consequences. Uh, our, Our ninth graders need to know that premarital sex has a range of devastating consequences. They need to know that the soul that sinneth, it shall die a little bit at a time. People that have been promiscuous have the most difficult time establishing a solid marital relationship that is filled with safety and trust. And they have degraded and diminished the gift of God until it has no pleasure in the meeting of two people together to pleasure each other. It's about using and abusing. I'm not not condemning everyone, but I'm telling you our culture has lost its moorings in terms of understanding whatsoever things are true. I, I want to share with you uh, some things this morning and I'll try not to be too long and I'll, I'll call it restoring the boundaries and foundations of true truth how many of you have been to court and had to had to witness for something okay what did the judge say to you or the bailiff say to you before you gave your testimony you made Right. Do you solemnly swear that the witness you are about to give in this matter will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Uh, Does that guarantee that what comes out is going to be the truth, or is it going to be a spin? Uh, Jesus, standing before Pilate, and he had claimed, and it was part of the accusation against him, that uh, he was the king of of the Jews. Now, the Jews were a sect living in that area uh, that now was under the heel of Rome. And they had lost their freedoms, and they got only the freedoms that Rome gave to them. So for someone to rise up and claim to be the king of the Jews... From the Roman mind, that was sedition at its highest level. So he stands before Pilate and he answers the accusation. He says, you are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, for this reason uh, I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What do you think Pilate's response was? What is truth? Now, here's a cynical man who had good reason to be cynical. He is a part of the Roman ruling elite. The Jews have come to him with an accusation that in a, it, by all reasonable measure had nothing to do with Rome. And the accusation was that Jesus was undermining The order and law of the culture, and uh, he knew that there was nothing coming from the accusers, and certainly there was nothing coming from the Roman culture that had anything to do with the truth. Pilate was not going to be was not making a decision on the basis of what is true. He was going to make a decision on the basis of what is expedient. What will keep Rome in power? What will help me keep my job? And how can I keep this rabble down? Keep them satisfied so they don't tear up the place and Rome sends in new leadership and I'm out of here. So all the way along, here's Pilate say, tell me, what's truth? How many could, do you think many people feel that way now? When you read about what's going on, when you read about this stuff, uh, in the Middle East, and uh, all the giving and taking, coming and going, you just kind of, you know, what is truth? Who are we supposed to believe? Now, what has happened in those fifty-five years? And I'm only using my my own frame of reference, which is probably broader than most here. But you could say the last twenty-five years, or a hundred, or not one hundred and fifty years, but I'm saying in about sixty years, the founding assumptions about truth in our culture have been piece by piece eroded and chipped away. Uh, there is no the government is like a, 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 a the Lilliputian giant that is all wrapped up with all these cords and it can't move. It cannot make The most obvious decision. Because at this point, who's to say what is true? So it comes to the marriage issue. It comes to the uh, homosexual issue. uh, It comes to the issue of how we are going to deal with social problems. And uh, you've got 400 plus people who cannot come together and make the most obvious and plain decision. There are so many agendas going on. Each one of these elected officials is thinking about, not the issue, but my constituency and what they might want. Uh, They're thinking about the ridicule that they might get from the intelligentsia, from the education culture, if they take a firm stand. So, rather than truth being the issue that would guide the judgment, it becomes expedient. Because the goal is not a righteous nation that is under the blessing in the hand of God. The goal is keeping my job and skinning the cream that I can while I'm here. Now, not everyone is to be indicted with that. But that is the ethos that has become the norm in our culture. I want to talk to you about a truth filter. Uh, Jesus says plainly that he is, in essence, the measure of all truth. John fourteen six. he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am the way shower, and I am just the way giver, or the truth giver. And he didn't just say that I am uh, the one that in some way uh, is involved with life issues. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. Now, dear friends, if you want to have an ability to discern truth and error, can I suggest to you that you study Jesus, that you know about him and you see the grand scheme from Adam, the fall, the prophets, all the way through and clear through the Gospels and the epistles. And we come to Revelation and we see the picture that God is doing is working to redeem a culture or redeem a world. And we get the picture that there. There are some things that are true, and these are theological issues that people in power or government need to know, but don't believe. I'll tell you, one of them is they don't believe that the human being is fundamentally broken. The assumptions of the existing culture is that humans are just the the, the victims of their environment, their poverty, their lack of opportunity. If that be true, I need to ask you a question. How do you explain that no civilization has lasted beyond 300 years? All of them starting with great idealism of how the common man was going to become uh, blessed in every possible way. And the problem has always been that this defect in the human heart, whoever's in power, you know what the golden rule is? He who has the money rules. He who has the power rules. That's a cynical thing to say. But this is, this is where we have come. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a framework. That's what this little rectangular thing is. There are four sides. And I would like to share with you, quickly, uh, four issues that give you a framework for discerning and knowing the truth. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Two great words, grace and truth. And I'm going to tell you right now, most people don't know the definition of either of them. We're going to talk briefly about them this morning. John 5.39 says, you diligently search the scriptures. Jesus is talking to the Jews. And uh, these were people who had made a commitment to a theory of life that involved... Gradual improvement. Uh, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify of me. So they said, We revere the law of Moses. This this has been for four thousand years our hope of reuniting with an offended God now Jesus comes along and he says these very scriptures that you're using to uh, hold steady and not be open to understanding in your position, these are the very scriptures that have talked about me. Now we could go back and spend a lot of time in the Old Testament identifying all the things that were said, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Even... Uh, about his parentage and his lineage and uh, everything even up to how he would die. All of this was in the Old Testament prophets. But there was a blindness that had come over the eyes of the people and they just didn't see it. And Jesus is saying, these scriptures have been pointing all the time to me. And I have come and I'm going to establish a new order of things. And if you, li- if you would like to shortcut it, full of grace and truth. Uh, okay, there's only 12 more pages. <laughs> Jesus, sent by the Father... Is to be the or is the revelation of ultimate truth? Uh, does anybody see? Twenty years ago, I had never even heard this term worldview. I mean, I mean this, and it's such a profound idea. And what it means is how you see true truth, how you see reality. And uh, I, I just want to share with you that Jesus had a worldview that becomes our framework of truth. And there are four elements to it, like there are four sides to that Pyrex dish that give us a look into this. Number one, and uh, I hope that uh, this will make sense to you, Jesus had a spiritualistic worldview. How does that fly in the university. The unseen realm, the realm of spirit, the realm of angels, the realm of demons, the realm of Satan himself. Uh, I I, I got an article off the the internet and uh, the title of the article was Will Science Ultimately Prove uh, That There Is No Need For God? And of course, they're looking at the proof of origins and beginnings and evolution and and that whole realm of pseudo knowledge. And their 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 great joy was anticipating the time when they find that one last little piece that will show how something came out of nothing, and how that little something, sudden or not suddenly, but over forty billion years became. Uh, 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 a one-celled creature, and then a three-celled creature. And it developed and voila, here we are. <laughs> Dear friends, I don't hate people who feel this way. I know that they are clinging to straws, that they have more faith than you or I will ever have. I don't have faith enough to believe this stuff. God is, is going to be dealt with and we must account uh, for him as the center and source, Jesus had a spiritualistic worldview. There is an invisible realm. Paul writes in the epistles that we do not look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. This is where this is where all of the big questions are answered. This is where we find a reason and a solution for the for the perverted heart of humanity. It's possible for us who have been separated from God by Adam's independence inheriting his genes that we can be brought back to a place where we see with clarity the sovereign goodness and power of God uh, in, in all of these things. Colossians 1. Well, I'll go somewhere else right now. In Luke chapter 4, we have the account of uh, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. He had a head-to-head confrontation with Satan, the leader of the spiritual rebellion. How many of you know there's a real devil? How many of you know that he had legal right given to him to rule in the earth? He is the prince and the power of the air. He is not to be blown off as not a factor. I invite you to read history with understanding and explain it if this is not true. now Paul also uh, recognized uh, that, there are, that there are many uh, accounts of demonic activity among humans and successful exorcisms. Jesus cast out demons. Uh, I've been in the ministry for 45 years. I can't think of a demon I sent running. I know there were some. And I know that that influence usually was more subtle than you could take head on. But dear friends, we are in a warfare. And uh, the scripture tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 makes it clear. That uh, we are in a warfare and that uh, the warfare is, is worked out in the minds and hearts of peoples with false thoughts about what is true. He says in that passage that we will take captive every thought. And make it obedient to Christ. So when you're wondering if your thinking process is right, I invite you to take it and set it on the table next to Jesus. You'll know in an instant whether it's from God, whether it leads to life, or whether it leads to death. Now these are very practical things that I think uh, I needed. Uh, I've spent a lot of time studying and praying, uh, interacting with, with other Christians, trying to find some answers to why so often the church is powerless. And in fact, when you look in the mirror, it looks just like the world. When you look at the attitudes, the values, the reactions, the emotions, and so often we see a powerless giant that needs to be liberated and to understand their position in Christ and the resources that are theirs, and the point of liberation is understanding true Truth. So Jesus had a spiritualistic worldview. He believed in this stuff. Uh, the second one, the kingdom of God is here now, but not yet. What is a kingdom? How do you define a kingdom? A kingdom is a, 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 a realm of authority that is exercised by a ruling figure. And he believed that the kingdom of God has come. Now, we can go back to Genesis and come all the way through, and we will discover that uh, there was a catastrophic event that took place that transferred legal right to Satan over the earth separated man from God because he had embraced the lie that he could be his God if he would just be independent. That's the lie. How many of you know that every single sin, all the sins come from the sin? you know what the sin is? A spirit of self-control. Uh, uh, I don't mean that in a positive sense. But a spirit of independence. And I could say, I, I, I agree that God's a necessary thing. And I, and I want him as part of my, my entourage. But I want to run my own life. And I'll, if I need counsel, I'll go to him and ask him for some advice. And he'll give it. But the reality is that God has made provision. For us to experience total redemption from the fall and the curse. How many of you believe that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin? Amen. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You believe it? How many of you believe that when Jesus went to the cross, you were in Christ? No, I don't mean figuratively. I mean literally. Literally. That your Adam nature was placed in Christ and put to death. Now the issue is, am I going to believe it on the 24-7 schedule? Am I going to believe that it is no longer I that live? My identity is no longer Floyd Evers, son of Adam. My identity is Floyd Evers' second name, Jesus Christ. He lives in me by the Holy Spirit. The secret of the Christian life, dear friends, is not try harder. The secret of the Christian life is not grieving over my sin and getting up and determining, and I'll never do that again. Every time you live from the old self that Satan holds up in front of you, you will find yourself in that independence, uh, in a position of uh, living independently from God and operating from a source that is not adequate. Dear friends, I want you to know that the good news is not that Jesus came and raised the bar of expectations. That's not good news. Israel couldn't get over the first bar of the Ten Commandments and the host of laws that came out of it. And we are in a position... Where so often, we take that same position. I'm better than so-and-so. I fit in with this group because I've developed these, these niceties and attitudes. And, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm doing pretty good. And I go to this church, and I, and I raise my hands, and I worship. But on Tuesday, somebody cuts me off in traffic. I mean, there's a, t- a billion things that could happen that would cause Satan to try to raise up in your vision... The vision of old Adam. And your first response is, I can handle this. I can do this. I won't do that again. And I'm saying, it's futility. Because Jesus not only forgave our sins, but he provided for our sinfulness. Do you know that the spirit of Adam is inclined in a certain direction of self-fulfillment? He's inclined in that direction. Uh, How many of you know what uh, wicker furniture is? Do you you know where that word comes from? The word wicker comes from the word wicked. And it means bent. Bent. Our old nature is bent. And the torment of many Christians is living from that bent and trying desperately to To experience the life that comes from that bent nature. Let me tell you something about your old nature. It is is incorrigible. It is incorrigible. It cannot be redeemed. Its only end must be death. Which took place in Jesus Christ on the cross. How many of you have been baptized? How many of you know that if you understood it, When you were baptized, that's what you were confessing is true. If you were baptized by immersion, the picture is of death, burial, and resurrection. What's the death, burial thing? Some kind of figurative something that I hope will be true when Jesus comes back? No. God, I agree that this old nature of mine will never be righteous enough to be accepted by you. And I'm agreeing with it. And I'm going to assume the posture that this is true truth. And I'm going to stand in it 24-7 all day long. The position of death seems kind of macabre. But the truth is, without the death of Adam, there can be no life of Christ. There's only room for one ruler. And Adam, by Satan's promptings, can become real religious. And I believe that Christians have lived so long under a huge cloud of burden. A burden of guilt and shame. I'm not measuring up. I... I just can't seem to get it right. So we have another altar call and we come down and we we vow that we're going to do better. Now I'm not against altar calls but the vow that I'm going to try harder and do better is exactly the wrong response. The vow that I will confess that apart from Christ I can do nothing but with His life in me His life as my source I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, dear friends, we need to get this right, or the church is never going to become that vital display of the life of Jesus Christ. I tell you the truth. I hardly have time for the most important point. Oh, yes, I do. It's not 12 yet. (laughs) I want to talk to you about, now this is side number three. And it's the grace-law dichotomy. Do you know what a dichotomy is? I don't either. I like the word. Uh, It's a point that separates. The grace-law dichotomy. Uh, Let's take it simply. There are two perceived ways that humans seek to become united with a holy God. One of them is by obeying the law, good works. Every religion, except Christianity, comes from that foundation of untruth. Excuse me. There is no way on earth or heaven that we are ever going to be able to be righteous enough to be accepted by a God who is absolute in His holiness. It is not going to happen. And the tragedy is is that there are literally billions of people in Judaism, Catholicism, Islam, uh, Hinduism, whatever it is, their whole thesis is to discipline the flesh And to do the the rules. And that's my hope. That somehow I'm going to become uh, accepted by God. Whatever my understanding is of, of the future. It is all based on human bootstrap theology. That I am going to improve and get better and better until I get to the top of the ladder. And lo and behold, I am holy. And God accepts me. In fact, I am God. How many of you know that this is Mormon theology? I don't have any uh, beef with our presidential candidate, Mitt Romney. Uh, I see him as an honorable man. I see him as a man who demonstrates discipline in his life. His marriage, his children, his approach to, to people that... That's what I see. I do not see him as a Christian. Because his hope is not built on the right foundation. And I would pray that God would take him that one step where he would see the acquisition of glory, which is the hope of all of us. The acquisition of glory is totally dependent upon Jesus Christ and his Son living in us by the Holy Spirit. Grace, let me tell you about grace. She, this was my sister's name. My parents had some understanding. What is grace? I'll tell you what it comes out like in most, many people's thinking that grace is God's cosmic handy wipe to clean up our messes. Oh, but for the grace of God. What a mess I would have. I'll tell you it's far deeper than that. And I have I've had a couple of definitions that I've worked on, and you can take them and refuse them, anything you like. But I would say that grace is God's empowering presence, enabling me to be what He created me to be and to do all that He's called me to do. I've got another definition. Here it is. Grace, God implants His Son within me by the Holy Spirit manifesting His life, His wisdom, His thoughts, His discernment, His emotions through us who are His body. It's all God's doing. All God's doing. And it comes to us as a gift. And we can receive it because the price has been paid and we no longer have to live. The fourth element uh, you guys would know. Uh, when I look at, at Jesus and his worldview, he believed in relational methods. Uh, it was not tent revivals, it was not 10,000 people in a stadium or 100,000 people in a stadium. It, <clears throat> It was the transference of one, of life from one person to another. Now, we've embraced a totally different view of how that's to be done. And we have, we have given our funds and we have uh, lifted up and glorified another vision for how the kingdom is going to be advanced. And I'm not saying that God couldn't intervene in any of those situations and do something. But dear friends... The, the fruit is small. Uh, you can take the biggest church in the valley, which isn't all that big. And uh, I had a friend who was, who moved to where we were. And he moved from a big church down in Pasadena. And he read their annual report. Now, here's a church of several thousand people. Here's a church that is, uh, Fundamental, uh, that basically God uses them. But in the annual report, they could only identify, I believe it was six people who had made a profession of faith. Not that they had been discipled to understand the kingdom, but they had made a profession of faith in the previous year. Probably five million dollars to run that church for 365 days. A lot of good things, people were comforted, all kinds of things happening, but uh, somewhere along the line, the, the main issue was not being addressed. And people were not seeing how their life can be used by God from a foundation of truth to influence, to flavor, to be an aroma in their oikos, as Jeff is wont to call it. And it's a good word. Shows that you know, see, I I do know a little Greek. He runs a delicatessen. (laughs) Okay. Do you know why the law was given? Read Galatians. The law was given to bring us to despair. To come to the end of any hope of our achieving a righteousness acceptable to God. It was to break us and bring us to a place of total openness to receive the gift that our independent nature doesn't even want to admit I need. Dear friends, I believe that if, if these truths about true truth and the nature of the kingdom of God, if this became the living reality of our day-by-day life, Uh, we would truly become salt and light on this mountain. And it won't be measured by a building of a thousand people. It's going to be measured by a change of temperament and environment that covers everything from city hall to the schools, because that's where we live. Dear friends, uh, this is the test, as I see it, of the uh, four elements of uh, the kingdom and what God desires to be normative in our life. I'm okay if this doesn't feel right in some places in your heart. I have prayed that God would help me to see deeper and more. And I'm praying that God will help each of us to see deeper and more the greatness of our salvation, that is focused on ultimate redemption, when all of rebellion has been put down, and the saints are gathered together, perfected in Christ, to enjoy Jesus Christ forever. I mean, this is the end program. We would ask the communion stewards if they would come. And I want to use the Grace Law issue to talk about as we as we partake of the elements that represent the body and the blood of Jesus. Let me read this while they're receiving the the, the, the elements. This is in Colossians one nine to fourteen. Colossians is a book that uh, Jim Dennis and I have just finished. Six chapters full of great things. It says, We do not stop praying for you. Just hold steady for a minute. We do not stop praying for you. Asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this In the kingdom of God. Is this great? Uh, Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. The wisest of us are just on the edge. We're just learning. But we see the glow. We see the glory out there. We know that it's real. And we are experiencing. uh, The kingdom in this light. As we. As we diligently. Seek his face. And we see God actually shining through us. We see uh, our attitudes change when we're abused or in some way uh, dealt unfairly. We see that there's another life source at work here. I wouldn't do that. That's not how I'm wired. But it is how Jesus is wired. And this glorious person lives inside of everyone of his children, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask uh, the brothers to uh, distribute the bread and the cup. And while they're doing this, I want to just share a little bit of the framework. So, gentlemen, thank you. The scripture tells us that the Lord Jesus, and this is important, I think we miss it, the same night in which he was betrayed, the same night that he got up from the table and took the the, the cloth of the servant and went around the table and washed the feet of all of the disciples. What a dramatic moment. A moment that tells us what the spirit of life in Christ Jesus Looks like what is released through us. The Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, He took bread and when He had given thanks He broke it and He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do you know what that means? That means we are acknowledging that the God who created everything was truly man. He had a body and by that means he could be the substitute for all of us who have bodies. This is my body which is broken for you. And after that, he took the cup. And when he had sucked or had drank, saying, this this uh, cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do you know what a covenant is? Let me encourage you on something. Make a study of the idea of blood covenant. It will change your life. But this covenant, he says, is a covenant that's made and sealed by my blood. Do you know what the old covenant was? It was law. It was working. It was striving. It was self-improvement. It was failing. Do you know what the new covenant is? It is embracing this one who died uh, in our place and who now lives and desires to manifest his life through us. The new covenant is grace. It is God working in us, both the will and to do of his good pleasure. So when you take these elements, I want you to know that this is not a Christian ritual. In fact, if you're not a Christian, there's something you can do. You can bow your head before God and just tell him silently, out loud, however you want to, God. I'm aware that I am not acceptable to you because of my sin. And I'm aware that Jesus paid the price of my sin and right now I'm going to receive that gift. Not only to cleanse my sin, but to actually be life in me. Jesus said if we confess him before men, he will confess us before the Father which is in heaven. So let's, uh, I could use a couple. Oh, by the, truth. <laughs> by, the truth. by the truth. All right, friends. Jesus, truly man, your substitute, your name, was broken so that we could experience the wholeness that comes to redemption. Let's partake together. the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. 4,000 years of Israel's history, there must have been a swimming pool of of blood that was shed by all of these animals. Maybe a lake. I mean, it went on and on and on. And none of it worked. Because none of those animals had the value in, in dying that would... Redeem one human being. Jesus, the creator God, from all eternity, took the form of a man. And then as a man, he became the sacrifice for your sins and your sinfulness. Let's partake together. we're going to be dismissed uh, to several things. Uh, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to ask maybe Linton and some of the others who know how to pray and who God has used in ministry. Maybe you just hang around up front here for a little bit. And if there's anyone that would like uh, prayer, God's touched your heart with something this morning and you say, I need that. I want that. And you would like someone to pray with you. When the service closes, I want you to just come up here and and hang around. And someone will be here to just agree with you in prayer for the acquisition of the great provision through the blood of Jesus. Let's stand together. I'm going to ask also that uh, uh, if you're not among the ones that would like to come here for prayer... Uh, If you would at least move to the back third of the room and out in the hallway, grab a cup of coffee. There's some donuts out there that are (laughs) semi-fresh. Just hang around and, and, and talk with people. Maybe even invite someone home for dinner. How about that? I would challenge you with something on... The first Sunday of every month, plan your noon meal at home, not in the restaurant. That's chaos. But at home, to bring someone or invite someone to be with you for that meal. Can you believe that God would use this to heal and to build His body? Amen. Could we just join hands across the aisle here? Well, let me break this. God, You have favored us with amazing grace. And we have been recipients of a salvation that is so full and complete that none of us have fully understood all that it it involves. But this morning, Father, we open our hearts for Your Spirit to teach us about true truth as it's found in Jesus Christ. Teach us, Father, to read and watch and do with discerning eyes and not be drawn into the, the the mountain of lies that are coming at us every day. God, we receive Your grace and Your mercy as we leave this place of assembly, and we give You praise in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen.